Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. Nehemiah chapter 5. For those of you that noticed that Easter is only two weeks away, we are not going to do the next eight chapters of Nehemiah today. <laughs> we're going to get through the end of chapter 6, and then we will set it down begrudgingly, pick something else up, and then hopefully come back to it at some point in the life. Just one more reason for you to join Hope Church and stay for a long time to catch the back half of Nehemiah at some point in the future. We are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5. Please tap or turn your way there. I want you to see this. I want you to have access to it. I want you to be able to know later in the week how to get back to it, find it, think about it, read it. The words that we're reading are not our words. We believe that they're God's word. They're very, very important. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to gift you a copy on your way out in a modern English translation. But in Nehemiah chapter 5, we're continuing to think through what Nehemiah is thinking through, which is the big work of the Lord and all the things that come with it. How do you go about doing what God calls Christians to go about doing? How do you do it? How do you do it well? How do you do it in such a way that you succeed? How do you do it in such a way that you succeed in a lasting way? These are big concerns. They should be the big concerns of God's people who are seeking ways to honor him. Nehemiah went about his work. I want us to think about how we're going to go about it. Here's one of the big things that comes up, though. God in his kindness, Nehemiah chapter 5, it gives us a really realistic look at what happens. To this point, he's gotten excited. He's doing what God's called. He's got a team. They're working together. Everything is moving the way you want it to move. And then, so imagine you're going on vacation. If you got kids, this is a bit of a production. You got the whole thing. You got everything figured out. You've got tabs on your little browser on your phone where you know your Airbnb, you know your gas station stops. You finally got everybody packed. You finally got the whole kind of van in ready. You got it scheduled because there's nap times and because there's angry times. And you want to try and make sure that you can mitigate those as well as possible. You've finally done it and you're driving. Everybody's on. We know where we're going. We're moving. You're on 15 and maybe two minutes later, the check engine light comes on. Probably try to dismiss it. If you're like me, you're like, nah, I don't know. Maybe that's one of those like automatic things because I you know, didn't change the oil in the last 3,000 miles or something. Maybe, maybe it's just an automatic. I don't know. And then it starts to blink. You're like, I don't even know. Check engine lights could blink. Eh, maybe that's another problem. Maybe it's some sort of a sensor issue. And then you hear noises from the engine. Well, you got to pull over. You got a problem. You got to fix it before you can continue. Nehemiah had a problem. And what I want you to see today is that it's not just like some sort of demonic enemy getting in there working against. Yeah, that happens. That was in chapter 4, and it was actually the first thing we talked about. But there's also just a lot of problems in a fallen world with fallen people. And when you go about a process, those problems are going to come up. How do we deal with them? How do we deal with the problems that come up when we go about doing the mission that God's called us to? Here's my three points. We want to see the problem. We've got to check ourselves, and we've got to get to work. First, I want you to see the problem. Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives, 
against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. The timing of this wall building thing hit in an awkward place in an agricultural culture. Remember, Nehemiah, a uh, slave slash servant of the king of the Medes and the Persians, hears that Jerusalem is broken down, its walls are, are rubbish, its gates are burned. God's city is in dishonor. He weeps, he cries, he fasts, he prays, he beseeches the king. Then, with the king's blessing and the king's wallet, he heads back to Jerusalem and begins the process of building walls around it. As they're in that process, the people who are doing the work with him start running out of food. That's a blinking check engine light. They start running out of what they need to be able to feed themselves and their children. They got to figure out what they're going to do, and they got to figure out how they're going to do it quick. It says in verse 3, because it goes further, there were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there was those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. We're the same. And yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Take a minute to understand what's happening here. This is one of those Old Testament moments where you can read it. And if you don't understand it immediately, just keep going or stop and try to understand what's happening. Let me humbly ask you, encourage you, more often than you currently do, to stop and try and figure out what's happening. What's happening here is that there's, there's a couple of groups of people. There's the sustenance kind of workers. These are the people who work a day, take that money, and pay for the next day. So if they stop working, they're in a bad way. If they stop working for 52 days of wall building, they're in a real bad way. Group one. Group number two is a little better off. They actually own some land. They've got fields, they've got vineyards, but they've had to mortgage those things in order to pay for what they're trying to do. They've had some catastrophe, famine, and they've got just oppression, big taxes. In order to pay those things, they need to have very productive uh, uh, lands and vineyards and they weren't able to keep up. So they had to then mortgage their land and their vineyard in order to pay what they weren't able to pay. They had to get a loan, and the collateral on the loan was the vineyard and the land. Because of even more difficulty, they can't repay the loan. So what happens? Well, they have to find a way to pay, or they have to give up their land and give up their vineyard. Now, it's one thing to give up your land and your vineyard. For us, you might hear that and say, oh, well, yeah, I definitely don't want to give up like my house. I don't want to have to go stay with somebody. But this is actually more than that. It's not just their house. It's also their income. They're having to mortgage the only thing that they can use to get themselves out of debt. So what do they do? They're having to resort to selling their children into slavery. 
Now they got to hope that, that, that selling them into slavery, they'll be able to, to hopefully, if they get a good next year, use the vineyard and land that they've kept that way to redeem their child out of slavery. But do you see what happened? See how cruel that system is? What's even worse is that the people who were doing this to them were the other Jews. Now, the Jews didn't cause the famine, and the Jews didn't cause the king's tax. But they did lend to their brothers and their sisters with an interest rate. They loaned to them knowing that they might be able to get their land cheap if they default. Then it becomes their vineyard, their land. Or, and this is even worse, but I don't know, they lent it to them knowing that maybe they could enslave that daughter. Some wicked stuff happening. And Nehemiah's got to fix it. So, there's a couple of ways you can read this text and think about it. First, you can get excited about that one specific issue of poverty. I'm actually going to sidestep that somewhat. One, uh, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit. But two, I think it's maybe more helpful for us to think about the process of problem solving that's taking place in the, t- in the passage. If all we talk about is poverty, great. I hope you'll think about it more. But I think what we really need is to think about how God models for us going about problem solving in the things that come up with us. I don't think this is always going to be our situation. We're not agrarian. We don't have a debt service program with selling your kids into slavery. So it's not one-to-one. So I also want to think about the process. But quickly, we do want to think about poverty because I think the Bible speaks into it in a way that we don't always think. First, God does not consider poverty to be a uniform issue. He sees it as lots of different groups. He does see it as a big problem. He also sees it as a perpetual problem. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. Now, that may have been offhand, but it was Jesus. And you know what? 2,000 years later, he's right. So it's not a problem we're going to solve quickly or maybe ever. I do think what's helpful is to see that it's also not a uniform problem. All the poor are not the poor alike. The Bible has four different categories for, we're going to talk about three and then kind of hint at the last one. The Bible has four different categories for poor people. First are people that are made poor by catastrophe. In the text, it's referenced in the way of the famine. Well, you definitely want to help those people out, right? Man, the same thing could happen to you tomorrow. You understand that the only thing that they need is a little bit of help, and then their system will kick back in and they'll be ready to roll again. They won't continue needing help forever. Yeah, you definitely want to help those people. There's people that are poor because of catastrophe. There are people that are poor because of oppression. Much more complicated. You know, a cyclone might come through, a famine might happen, and there's nothing we can do other than try and survive it. But oppression, it feels like there's more that we could do. And that makes it way more complex In the case of these people in Nehemiah's day, there's nothing really they can do. Maybe they can talk to Nehemiah, who definitely has the king's ear. But at the same time, I I think what will happen is that the tax is the tax, and they have to pool their resources as well as they can to get each other through that oppression. Okay. And yeah, there is a third group of poor, biblically, and they are the sluggards. That's the Proverbs word for the lazy. It says in Proverbs, this is kind of... There's a couple of verses, but read it with me because it gives you a picture. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. 
Then I saw, and I considered it, and I looked, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Ooh, do you feel that? You should, you bunch of lazy bones. Do you feel that? Let that go in your head. Boy, it's intense, but it's also a good picture. We live in a place that's a lot more wealthy with a lot more, you know, kind of um, pretend money, you know? Our money's not as visible as like a field with nettles or no nettles. It's all just kind of, I don't know, I go to a website and it tells me this is a number. I hope that's true, you know, and then you run the card and they give you a hamburger. It works. These people had a much more visible wealth or no wealth. So let me ask you, are you working? Oh, you should be. Because biblically, if you don't, we're not supposed to feed you. Hey, catastrophe, oppression, we're there. Laziness? Maybe you get a little kick as opposed to a handout. That's what the Bible says. It says in the New Testament, uh, we gave you this command. If anybody's not willing to work, let him not eat. It doesn't say not able to work. It says not willing to work. You get this. So... Not everybody is poor alike. We need to have the wisdom to consider a situation in order to know how to jump in and help as well and as wisely as possible. Not everybody is lazy, and that's the reason they're poor, but also not everybody is oppressed, and that's the reason they're poor. Requires wisdom in order to know how to judge well, in order to see a problem and judge it well. But see that this problem isn't just poverty, it's also the oppression of the people on their own people. And that's where both it gets a little too icky and it gets real real. Because what they're doing by enslaving each other and stealing from each other, that's just standard practice for the ancient times. What they're doing is not uncommonly evil. What they're doing is standard practice. The wild, gross perversion of it is that these are supposed to be the people of God who have God's law, have His name, have received His mercy, have seen something of His face. So before we judge too harshly, let me ask you, Are the practices that you maintain towards other people in this church wildly different from the way you treat people in the world? Okay, maybe not the best way to say that. You're supposed to treat the people in the world nice too. But you learn a certain way to interact out in the world. When you come in here, do you just do the same thing? Man, the church is familiar with sexual immorality. The church is familiar with a disregard for the poor, with backbiting, with high-handed judgmentalism, with a total unwillingness to put yourself before another in order to fix something, to, to place rich people up on a pedestal. We do that. These are worldly things that the church has just continued, has not considered holiness appropriately. We've got to see the problem. See the problem in yourself first, 
please. See the problem in yourself first. You don't want to just be the one who's, who's pointing out dust in everybody else's eye, trying to walk around with a big plank swinging around from your eyeball. But we got to see problems. Nehemiah saw it. The people saw it. They went about a mission, and the check engine light went off. They had a problem. People aren't getting food. They understand a little bit more about that, and they realize that not only are people not getting food, they're losing their land and their vineyards to each other and having to sell their kids into slavery. Oh, mama. So there's a problem. we got to fix it. But we also need to understand why we need to fix it. And the Bible is a little bit confusing in that it doesn't really bank on the same motivation you would expect it to use. Look what it says in verse 6 through 9. This is our point on check yourself. you got to think about the why here, and you got to understand it well. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard about their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held great assembly against them, and I said, we as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even tell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent, couldn't find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Now he goes about calling this thing out, bringing it into the light and seeing repentance. But we'll talk about that in just a second. Notice the motivation for why they needed to change. He goes through all this. He's angry. There's an outcry. And you're saying to yourself, yeah, I'm offended. I'm offended that they would be stealing each other's land like that. I'm offended that they would be taking each other's children like that. But that's not what he says. He says... You shouldn't, this thing is not good. And you're, you're like, okay, I know why it's not good, and I've got a whole list of reasons. But look at the reason Nehemiah says you want to prevent the taunts of our enemies. Do you see that? His chief concern was not with them looking righteous, because his chief concern isn't them at all. His chief concern is the reputation and holiness of God. His number one concern, because his number one concern in all of this has been, how is God going to get his glory when his city has the walls broken down and the gates burned by fire? Then he gets there, they start working, he realizes the level of predation on each other, and he says, how is God going to get his glory when his people are doing this to one another? The motivation is very important. It's possible for us to get even more judgmental and say, how could you make me look bad? But that's not what Nehemiah says. He doesn't even say, how could you hurt one another like this? Even though I think that's part of it. His chief concern, I don't think his only concern. He's also concerned about those kids and concerned about those families. But his chief concern is God and his glory. Do you understand that we're not just a group of people here to serve one another? That's not what this is. By God's grace, we serve each other from the stage pretty well. This band's killing it. You come here, there's an incredible product that you receive from the kids ministry to the facility, to the music, to everything. You know, I'll stop from complimenting the preaching. (laughs) 
I'll let you do that. But you get a good product when you show up at Hope Church. The donuts are fabulous. But that's not why we're here. We are here for a totally different purpose, not to to do that only. We want to do that. That's why we put so much effort into it. But we're not to do that only or even primarily. Primarily, we're here to glorify God. That's what Jesus says about his community. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, you want to know what he says? It's a great place to start. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see the reason? Hey, we have to pursue righteousness. We have to pursue justice. We have to pursue it with each other. We have to pursue holiness. Do you know why? So that God gets his glory. He put his name on us. I am a child of God. You go out there with his name on you, you have the ability to defame him. We're called to go and to share the gospel. And I think sometimes when you read this, if you read this passage or have heard it talked about, you think about telling other people about him. And it's not less than that. Amen. Please do that. And I will say, we're wrong if we don't share. You're wrong if you are a committed Christian. If you're just investigating, visitor, totally different category. But if you are a committed Christian, you're wrong if you just walk by those Easter invites and you don't think about people you could possibly give those to. You're not a paper invite person? Great. You're wrong if you're not thinking about how you're going to invite people. We are called to do that. But God help us. If we get past our boldness issue and we go out and we share and we share and we share and they don't hear us. And it's not because we weren't bold enough to speak. They don't hear us because our lives are so filled with what God hates that it just has no meaning whatsoever for us to tell them that God's a holy God who forgives people. They look at you and go, huh, not sure I want that. No, man. We have to be concerned with God and His glory. We have to purify ourselves for God and His glory. doesn't save us. Please don't throw that out again. Oh, here's works righteousness. Of course not. Of course not. But we are called to holiness, and it does matter. Look at what God says through Paul in 2 Timothy. Now, in a great house, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel of honorable, for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I want to be useful. I want you to be useful. Check yourself. Three, then we got to get to work. we got to actually set about trying to solve these problems. I see two different ways in which the people are going about solving these problems. One, the people have to take responsibility. It's not as though it's okay to see a problem and be like, oof, hope somebody takes care of that. Glad that's not on, in my department. I'm glad that's not on me to take care of. Nehemiah confronts them. 
and then take responsibility. Verse 11, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. This is Nehemiah speaking to the people who are the predators on the other people. And those nobles say, we will restore and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. (laughs) They said they would, but I didn't believe them. So I brought in the priests and made them double dog swear that they would definitely give back the stuff. Well, yeah, they should. They took responsibility for the problem. Hey, John the Baptist was real great about telling people about their problems. He was a guy who saw the problems in the people of Israel. You know what they did to him? Oh, they chopped his head off. They shot the messenger. It is not going to be popular for us to see things that are wrong. It's not going to be popular for you when the Holy Spirit starts to tell you, hey, you know that thing he was talking about? Here here it is in your life. That little still small voice, that little conscience that you know you keep trying to like stomp on and get the heck out of here that bothers you about your life and what's going on in your life, you're going to have to start taking responsibility. You're going to have to start saying, that's me. One of the reasons that you don't want to do that is because it's like crushing to your pride to think that you could be wrong. Well, again, welcome to Christianity. The whole point of what it is to be a Jesus follower is not to be a holy person, it's to be a forgiven person. We should have the capacity to repent. It's how we got in the door in the first place. Don't be confused. Christianity is not for really righteous people to be able to put that honor on themselves. That's how most of the world works. You're not a champion until you win. You're not hired until you're qualified. Christianity is exactly backwards. Son, well-pleased, daughter of the king. And now slowly I'm going to help you learn what that means. It's exactly backwards. You cut down the net and then you go to practice. (laughs) It's exactly backwards. We're not a righteous people first and foremost. We are a people with a borrowed righteousness. We are a people who understand that God had to die to take our sin and pay for it and give us his holiness so that we could stand before him. That's what we mean when we talk about the gospel. That's what we illustrate when we do the Lord's Supper here in a minute. You're not giving of yourself, you're receiving from his gift. So we got to be a people, we, we can be a people, and we should be a people who can quickly and readily take responsibility for problems and work towards fixing them. There's a parallel to this in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when God gives the people of his church the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and there's Pentecost, whew, it's not too long after that that while the people are going about the mission while they're in the bus and they're driving, that the check engine light starts to go off. That some of the widows are not being cared for as well as some of the other widows. And wouldn't you know it, the ones who aren't being cared for well are part of an ethnic minority. 
So the people get very upset. Division starts to happen. A crack starts to take place in this unity. And what do the people do? They take responsibility, and God gives them a solution. They start fixing it. At that time, it was called deacons. We still have that capacity as a church. We're still called to have a group of people who are called, who have met certain qualifications of morality, who have met certain qualifications of like conviction about the gospel. They're not ashamed of it. And you give them certain problems, and they take care of it. We need more of those. So <laughs> purify your hands, you sinners, and let's get more of those guys, those people who can fix problems, take responsibility. Then the other thing that's supposed to happen is that the leaders set an example in sacrificing. You know, this whole time you've been thinking of yourself as Nehemiah and your, your job and your big project that God's going to call you to. Well, maybe don't, because this is what happens if you're the leader. It says in verse 14, Moreover, from that time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. And from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, and they took from, their, uh, took from them their daily rations of 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. He goes on to describe what was his table, the amount of people that he fed and the kind of food that he had to feed them. And he paid for it out of his pocket so that the food allowance from the king that really was taxes that would be taken from the people could stay with the people, and he could feed that many more people. Nehemiah put his own life, money, blood in the solution to this problem, and we're called to do the same thing. Jesus made it clear, if you're going to be a leader, this is what it looks like. You know, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They're great ones. They exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, this sermon has had a lot of oughts in it. Do's and don't do's. And yeah, I don't, I don't think any of those are less than what the text has. But remember where we get this from. Man, we've got an example here. We've got an author and a perfecter of our faith who didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for you. Hey, my, my encouragement to you today is to look at the cross, to see what Jesus did for you and the love he has for you and to be overwhelmed by it, to value it. And there, out of the fear of the Lord, we'll find all the motivation we need to go about fixing the problems that we have the right way for his glory.